Welcome, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, to Order of Play, a board games podcast. This evening, we have Rob White and myself, Garrett Alexander. Rob? Hello. Now, we're two very enthusiastic board game players. Mm. We've been gaming, I suppose, since we could pick up and roll a dice or move a chess piece along a board. Mm. Um, we're going to introduce the two of ourselves and we're also going to look at why we're making this podcast as well. Mm. But first introductions. So I've been gaming, I suppose, in one way or another um, since probably the age of five. I think my uncle introduced me to chess and how badly he could thrash me. And from there, I, I developed, I suppose, an intrigue for strategy, psychology, outwitting your opponent and theme as well. And I started discovering those terrible games from the 90s and 80s, Monopoly, which I'm sure has been around a lot longer than that, but that's when I was introduced to it and how much pain and torment you could cause on your family. And then moving up, I sort of developed into video games, uh, Duke Nukem, which was just a fantastic side-scroller and an old old laptop. And, and this, the way that sound and theme and ideas could impact on your imagination, but still getting captured by the old board game sense of things as well. There was an old monster game I used to play where it was a bit similar to uh, Mouse Hunt. Do you remember that? Rat, what's it called? Rat Trap. Rat Trap. Rat Trap. You had moving parts. Yeah. Uh, and you had to set a trap for your for your rat. Yeah, I, I think that, that was game. about Milton Bradley back in yeah. the 80s. I never actually set it up properly. I always just sort of did it my own way and it ended up breaking in the end. But yeah, it was a cool concept. Yeah, Like a Rube Goldberg machine, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And, and that was just fascinating. And of course, now we're in the sort of what we call the golden era of board games mm. where the selection... Uh, it's just so vast. You can get excellent intellectual strategic board games mm. for, for two people or they're up to 10 people, mm. uh, like your Twilight Imperiums. You can get uh, deduct deduction games. You can get In any genre. war games, any genre you can mm. think of. And it's just really connected with me um, being a passionate board gamer. Mm. What about you, Rob? Well, I, I think my my beginning was quite similar to yours in that uh, it was pretty basic from the outset. Games of Monopoly, Scrabble, Rummy, um, Canasta with my mum. Yep. Uh, and then moving into, like you say, the sort of uh, rat traps and the and the, um, and the the like. But I suppose my, my, my early obsession was within co with computer games. Mm. Um, and that was with Duke Nukem's Wolfenstein. Oh, yeah, fantastic. Uh, Heroes of Might and Magic, Close Combat, um, Commandos. Yes. I, I just loved all of that stuff. And, um, and then slowly moving into, into the board gaming, um, actually quite late. So I'd probably say um, in any real serious way, since I met you a number of years ago, so mm. about four or five years ago. So we're going we've, back than that, right? Yeah. Six or seven. Yeah, oh, actually, yeah. <laughs> it's getting, it's getting, <laughs> getting that way. So, um, so yeah, in, in more recent history, starting to get into board games, and now I've found this sort of um midlife crisis i don't know what it i don't know what it is actually i, I think it's just a renewed interest or, or just mm. an entirely new hobby um but but there is just something about the the tactile nature of board games and putting the pieces down and setting it up and and learning the game and um outwitting your opponent uh, it's just it's just a huge amount of fun and there's there's more reward to it than 
to it than, than gaming on, on a computer, Online, I think. I agree. Um, the, so, the, the look of uh, despair or joy on your opponent's face when either you pull the wool over their eyes and, and do yeah. a play that they're totally unexpecting yeah. or they crush you Correct. Uh, is just so satisfying. Like last week when we played the game that we're about to introduce. Yes, uh, <laughs> yes correct. correct. The look on, on, on my face must have been... It was truly... Really, oh, yeah? Oh, <laughs> I want to take a photograph of that. Yeah, take delicious. that to my grave. Just... So, so no, to answer your question, um, like I say, I mean, I've, I've had a, I've had a general interest in gaming most of my life, but, but board games probably in more mm. recent years. Um, but, but absolutely. Um, it's, uh, I mean, board gaming is just something special, which mm. is obvious is obvious because we're, we're now podcasting. I think we should also say that this isn't our first podcast, Garrett. No, it's not. Um, we're also war gamers as well. So we have an interest in not only history, but also strategy. And uh, we played a little game called Bolt Action, which mm. is um, from some fellas up in the UK. And yep. it's a World War II 28mm miniatures war game that pits roughly a platoon of soldiers and perhaps mm. some armoured vehicles um, against a similar-sized force. I like to think of it at the World War II of 40K. I think yes. That's probably for, for a layman, that's probably the best way to describe it. That's right. Um, and our cast was called the Bacon Burgers. Um, it's still currently running at the yep. moment. Uh, it's in the steady hands of, um, well, your brother, Tristan White, has been somewhat involved with that. Yep. Um, but I think he's got a, quite a few other casters there as well. JL, Lockie, um, it's still quite a popular podcast. Yeah, but um, our, our, our sort of passions have, have sort of shifted. Our, our interests have shifted. We still sort of dip our toes into the wargaming world from time to time. Sure. But, but our, our real, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but my, my sort of interests and my, my limited time that I have um, now that I have a, have a job, I spend almost entirely with, with board gaming. So this is, um, this is why we started this podcast. That's right. That's right. We want kind of want to introduce what we're playing at the moment, what we like about games, what we don't like about certain games, um, what games we can recommend to you, mm. uh, depending on what type of gamer you are as well. So we've got quite a diverse range of games that we do play from 20 minute uh, little fun, tiny games mm -hmm. to four hour, five hour. Oh my God, I'm not going to get home before 2am. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. To, to um, two-player games to um, ten-player games yep. as well. We we play the, a, a wide range of games, um, and we just want to introduce you to a couple that we enjoy. Yes. So so really, I mean, uh, and to be frank, this is for our enjoyment, <laughs> sure. just as much as your hopeful um, value that you get from this. But I suppose one of the takeaways we hope is that you can save some money, and you know where we we can find a game for you that is going to get you that bang for buck. We, you know, we, we want that. We can equally steer you away from those, um, those lurky little turds that, that's right. that's that do right. sort of, uh, that's right. rear their ugly heads. So, um, so yeah, I suppose that's the aim of this podcast mm. is really for you as the audience is, is, is hopefully that you get something out of it in terms of you just enjoy the banter, but at the same time you, um, you, you can get some uh, get some enjoyment out of it and try and, you know, we can give you some, some advice. We, we don't want to do a disservice. We want to make sure that the casts that we do release are articulate and well thought out and that they actually are of value. Um, I mean, we play games probably twice, three times a week. Mm -hmm. um, and when we find a new game, we really like to tear it to shreds and really sink our teeth into all the meat and potatoes that are there. And, um, and then we can come back and report to you about what we think of this game. Yes, well said. I suppose that's enough, and uh, let's move into our first game. How exciting! Our Ooh. first game. Quickly, Marjorie, come here and gather the children. What is it, my dear? 
Why, it sounds like that nuclear air raid siren. Quickly, quickly, turn on the wireless and see if there's any news. One moment. Now the trumpet summons us again. Now it is a call to bear arms, the arms we need. Now it is a call to battle, though in battle we are, but a call to bear the burden of a long twilight struggle, year in and year out. I'm going to introduce our first game. This one's called Twilight Struggle. It's number five on BoardGameGeek.com and it is number one in the war in the world category. This thing is a beast. This is a two-player game set in the Cold War from 1945 until hopefully 1989. It pits the Soviet Union in its glory against the United States of America, the Democratic Eagle. <laughs> the whole premise of the game it's a strategy war game and it includes I suppose pivotal moments throughout history um, and these are represented through a deck of cards the game's broken up into a, an early war a mid war and a late war some of the mechanisms that are used are area control and area influence um, there are dice rolling, hand management, and also simultaneous action happening as well. Um, Rob, this game is amazing. You and I have played probably 20 games, and each one has been vastly different. Mm. What are your thoughts on introducing Twilight Struggle? Oh, I, I don't even know where to start, but it, it is one of those games where you keep coming back for more. And more and more because there's just um, so many uh, there's so many aspects to this game um, that it makes it very hard to um, to sort of come to grips with it and, and 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 that makes it just all the more fascinating. But incredible game, um, and I suppose that's why it's the first game we're reviewing because we've played this game um, and not, yeah. not to death because that's the wrong word to use. I want a game right now. <laughs> we've got the board in front of us right now, actually, and um, and yeah, it is tantalising. We we did say. Once we've uh, finished this episode, we are going to have a game. Because we have to. It is, um, it is just tr- truly epic. Um, Th- this is our grown-up chess. And yes. I'm, not, I'm not just crediting chess, mm. um, but this is an absolute pitting against intellectual minds. This mm-hmm. is uh, as good as it gets as far as a war strategic um, game is concerned, mm. I think. Mm. Um, to give you a bit of background history, um, there's two designers behind this. Uh, Anada Gupta and Jason Matthews. And they've got quite the, uh, I guess, the interest in, in history and particularly around this Cold War era here as well. Mm. Um, and meticulously, they have play-tested and nutted out some fantastically, I think, balanced um, rules and a fantastic-looking map <laughs> to boot as well, complete with... Fake coffee stains. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But we're going to get into the nuts and bolts a bit later on. Um, I suppose, Rob, should we talk about what comes in the box? Yeah, absolutely. So um, what, what, what comes out of the box is a three, four by two playing board. Yeah, it's a, a 22 by 34 inch full colored map. There you go. Full colored map. And actually, um, 
not just a fully colored map, but it has got quite a bit on it, which we will get into some depth um, a little bit later. But in addition to that, you get a pack of cards, which covers um, the three stages of the game. That's right, 103 Ear- cards. Um, so early, mid and late war. Um, so based on the progression of the game, it determines the uh, the cards that you play with at that time. And I suppose there's sort of two real main types of cards in here. Mm-hmm. You've got what we call scoring cards. And when they're played by a player, you sort of total up the amount of board control you have in that region. For example, the Asia scoring card. Mm-hmm. And then you gain points based on your control of that area. Yep. Um, we've also got what we call the event cards. Now, these uh, can be used in two ways. Um, you can use them for what's called the the influence cost or, or the, the operations, um, operations value. value, I should mm-hmm. say, um, and, and do things with those operations, perform coups, place down influence to control countries uh, or, or realign the different influence in mm-hmm. different countries. Um, or you can play out the event that's in there. Now, these events are all based in history. Um, and what's fantastic actually around the actual box are these pivotal events as well. So, for example, um, we can look at oh, the Berlin blockade. Mm. Uh, so, Joseph Stalin in 24th of June 1948 um, orders Berlin to, to stop receiving supplies. He, he basically should, surrounds the city. I should, I should um, add to that point that in the rule book at the back of the mm. book, uh, they'll actually provide you even more detail about specifically what the event cards relate to. So you do get a bit, a little bit of detail on the card itself. Yes. Or, or you know, you, you will recognize some of the cards. There's a Shea Guevara card, for instance. There's sure. a Cuban Missile Crisis card. So some quite um, pivotal events in world history. Um, but I think the other thing to touch on there is that the cards themselves have um, three. Um, there's three types, really, in terms of the operations cards. There's ones that will benefit the Soviet player, ones that benefit the US player, and ones that will um, benefit the player playing the card or, or, or it has a neutral effect. That's right. So the ones that are um, Soviet are denoted by a red star, um, the Americans by a white star, and then a... Both players are red and white. Red and white. That's right. That's right. So, so really, um, in that way, you know, as an American player... For instance, I've got the card Liberation Theology in my hand right now. Now, this is a Soviet card. Mm. Um, now, if I choose to play this, it's got two op value. But in order for me to play it as an American, the event takes place and it advance, it's to the advantage of the Soviet player. That's so right. the event takes place. I can choose whether or not to play my operations before or after the event takes place. But either way, you get the event. And that's sort of part of the card management of this game of trying to figure out what cards to give your opponent and which ones you uh, you don't want to give. That's right. And this sort of simulates uh, you can't stop history. Mm. These events are going to play out at some point. You can try and mitigate them. You can mm. try and you can sacrifice these cards as well and they'll come back to haunt you eventually. Um, but eventually most of these events will happen. Mm. And it's sort of up to you to be a canny player and decide, all right, when's the most opportune moment mm. for this to play out? Um, some It is random... Uh, hand of cards you are dealt Mm. and you can get a whole hand of the opponent's cards and you just have to try and work your way through that 
Now, that, that is a rabbit hole we, we don't want to go to. Exactly. Now because we haven't actually finished off what you get in the box. There's more no. to it than just the cards and the board. Sure. You get um, the uh, the quick reference guides, which are the Twilight Struggle player aid cards, which yes. I believe you get two of, obviously, for a two-player yeah, game. that's right. Um, then you get a bunch of chiclets, um, little uh, tiles that be uh, placed down to yep. mark where your influence is. So there's 228 of these little suckers. That's and, yeah. um, and let's be honest, we don't use, we don't all, use of them. all of them. No, a lot of these you can just keep track of yourself. But the key ones are obviously the influence markers. That's right. Um, so as you play this game, some of the key locations in the world are marked down as a um, as forming part of a region or as a, a, con- a continent. For instance, Europe. Europe is made out of made up of um, an approximately, I would say, what is there, Garrett? Maybe 16? 15, 16 countries. Sure. Sixteen countries. So obviously, the key ones here are like Western East Germany, Poland, the UK, France, and basically, um, the way that the um, the influence works is that you place the influence on the country and you control it once you match the country's stability score. Right. So the less stable the country, the lower the score. Um, so by comparison, a quite unstable country might be. Let's see, Colombia has a score of one, which means you just need to put one influence marker in that country and it's yours. And that's sort of reminiscent of Colombia at the time as well. So you might have uh, instability in the government. Constant coups, that struggle between the twilight, struggle between the Americans and the Soviets trying to... For sure. um, Uh, Drug drug trafficking. Um, There are third world countries that are constantly dealing with poverty, riots. Now... In, um, conversely, the United Kingdom has a stability of five, right? Which is one of the highest, I think, or is the highest? Uh, not the highest, but one of the yes. Now, just out of curiosity, Garrett, which country has the highest stability? Oh score? my goodness, you know, I think you might be right. I think it is the highest. Yeah, you're right. Good old UK. That's right. Wow. So, and that's also reminiscent of um, just being a close ally with the United States mm. of America. Um, the the United States actually own the UK or have. A, not own it, that's the incorrect terminology, but hey, maybe they do. Um, it's more that they have sway over the United Kingdom because of their close ties for both the Second World War. You'll find most of the countries that are in the NATO treaty have quite high stability scores. That's right. But equally, the Soviets have a, quite a number of countries in the Eastern Bloc of Europe that have quite st- high stability scores as well. For instance, Europe, um, Poland has a score of three. Romania three, um, North Korea over in Asia has three. So so it's 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 quite balanced. Mm. I suppose that's one of the other good aspects of this game. Moving on, um, um, you also get two dice. Dice. That's, that's right. right. Um, the rule book. Yep. And uh, I think that's about it. Yes, uh, there's correct. Not really much else to it. It's, no. Um, it's. I mean, there is a lot, but it's sort of um, a big stack of cards, a big stack of tiles, and that's, sure. that's about it. Now let's just put a little caveat, I suppose, in here. Um, we played this game incorrectly. Uh, I constantly referred to the rule book for probably the first three or four games. Yes. We had to watch playthroughs on YouTube. Um, we had to really have patience in order to get our head around this game. But once we got it, man, we, we couldn't go back. No. It's, it is the king of kings as far as board games is concerned. Cadillac of board games. Sure is. <laughs> so I suppose we will move into mechanics. Yeah. Game mechanics and rules of play. So we're going to start by talking about what are mechanics? What are game mechanics? Hmm. Now, these are generally the principles or rules that will over, o- overarch a game. 
will define it and, and even sort of, yet um, that as well yeah define a game uh, set out the boundaries of the game what you can do in the game um and then obviously how to win the game. That's right. The most important thing, obviously. Mm. Now, the most important thing. <laughs> most important things to have fun. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> you tend to forget about that unless you're reminded. Buckle. So <laughs> mechanics as far as this game is concerned mm. is, I believe, an area control game. It's about spreading your communist tendrils mm. and advancing and just using that domino effect to take one country followed by the next, followed by the next and solidify positions. It's also about utilizing the cards in your hands to best effect, mm -hmm. deciding what order they need to be in, what your opponent's thinking of doing mm -hmm. and cutting them off before they're able to do it. Yes. It's about um, also wrestling with your opponent on some different, I think they're called tracks. So, for example, to show that you're not a weak leader, you need to have a required amount of military operations. You need to perform coups, stretch your superpower muscles, and show that you're not to be messed with. So this is each round. There's a number of cards that get played. So at the, at the start of each round, depending on the, the stage that you are in the Cold War, you'll be given a range of cards from, is it seven to nine cards, I believe? Eight to nine. Eight to nine cards. Yeah you have to play a certain number of those depending on where you are in the era. And, uh, and, then, and then obviously it's about managing those cards, playing them in the order that you think is going to be... That's right. Um, ...is going to be the best. And then obviously being um, mindful of your player's decisions during that time and being reactive to those, right. to those actions to then um, adjust your, um, your strategy. Now, there's two ways to end the game. Now, can I, can I interject there of just course. for a second? Because I course. just wanted to provide my take on what... The, the, the mechanics of oh, this please, game are. Oh, please, by all means. And I think the one thing that you've missed there is that there is an aspect of this game that is calculation of risk as well as mitigating disaster mm. um, because obviously a huge component of this game is the DEFCON status. Yes. Um, now, the DEFCON status, w w should I go into it now? Or well, I was going to touch on that about winning or losing the game, so winning. please go ahead. So, so obviously throughout the, um, throughout the entirety of the game, we have the DEFCON status, which um, plays a huge role in, 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 in Twilight Struggle. And let's talk about this from a historical point of view as well. Yep. So um, during this conflict... In real life, this Cold War, where it wasn't fought by tanks and weapons, mm. it was fought by proxy proxy governments, and it was fought by secrets, and it was formed by lies. Mm. But there was this nuclear threat on both sides, mm. slowly stockpiling these gigantic megaton weapons that could essentially wipe out countries. Mm. Now, as things became heated... The DEFCON, which is the American level of of a alertness, correct, mm. um, of perceived threat, would start at five, which is considered peace. Um, and as you work your way down, four, three, two. That's right. Nuclear war will break out. So I suppose um, we should explain that with each of the DEFCON levels in this game, it's always on one of them: five, four, three, or two. Um, so it's, it's, it's on that track at all times. Now, any time either player commits a coup... Yes. Um, ...or certain cards will affect DEFCON as well. Correct. But cooing a battleground country, which the countries um, that are on this board, 
and there are approximately, based on my observation here, maybe about 50 to 60 countries mm. um, on the board in total. They're differentiated by being battlegrounds or non-battleground countries. Now, when a country is a battleground country, it means that in the event that you do coup that country, you will reduce, you will degrade the DEFCON one level. That's right. Now, historically as well, battleground countries are where um, wars, most commonly of ideology, um, but also physical, mm. have happened in the past as well. So give us a few examples of some of the key battlegrounds that people might recognize historically as quite critical um, that are battlegrounds in this, in this game. Of course. Um, East and West Germany is probably the best example. Mm-hmm. Now, there was this, um, there's a place in Germany called Checkpoint Charlie, which is where the Americans um, had the, held their line against East Germany. Mm. Um, one particular point in history, um, a Russian tank ended up pointing their cannon straight at Checkpoint Charlie. The Americans then, of course, met fire with fire and Mm. pointed their tank from their army back at them. And this escalated to a five-on-five tank. Uh, Basically, Mexican standoff. Yeah, and this this is one of the cool aspects of this game that I love. And it's that as a result of the game, you end up doing a lot of just... Um, uh, history mm. research, and 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 I'm sure that that came as a result of this. Well, I, I was there in, in Berlin right. at the start of the year, and but, but the, I mean, I'm sure this. that this game oh, helped sure. instigate that interest. And and it's definitely the same with me. I mean, the thing that I didn't realize until I played this game and I did the research was that actually Berlin was in East Germany. I mean, it was surrounded by the East German Republic, a, a pocket of democracy, a, a pocket of democracy, and it was obviously split up as well. It was actually controlled by the by the different great powers. That's right. Um, of, uh, of, of World War Two, so so I suppose another battleground example would be North and South Korea, and of course yes. that relates to the Korean War. Fifty one. Japan is a battleground country once again, um, the, a critical country in terms of the the power struggle there, as well as its role in World War Two. Moving over to the American continent, we have um, Mexico being a battleground country, Cuba, Cuban Missile Crisis, of course, um, and then obviously countries that aren't necessarily. Um, Battleground countries. Battlegrounds, but obviously critically important to the sway and the, and the tilting of power. So France is a battleground country. Um, that was more of an ideological fight. You correct. had um, the goal there promoting communism. Um, and then you had, of course, your other pro-capitalist countries trying to, to influence and, that's right. and sway. So there's, uh, there's a number of battlegrounds. And as I say, um, as we say, they, they, they do influence the DEFCON level. Mm. Um, and then obviously in terms of scoring, they play a role into scoring as well. So in order to um, uh, win in the scoring um, uh, phases of this game, when, people, when you play a scoring card, um, you, you have to control more battlegrounds and non-battlegrounds than your opponent. Yes. So battlegrounds are critically important and they also give you a victory point, mm. which is the method of scoring in this game, per battleground you control. Yes. Um, when you do the scoring cards. What's interesting as well is as the DEFCON degrades, you actually locked out of of regions where you mm. cannot coup or realign, and we'll get to realignment in a moment, mm. anymore. So just before you go into that, the regions of this game, are the, 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 the primary regions are Europe, Middle East, Asia, Africa, Central America, and South America. But then Europe is broken up into two separate regions, West and Eastern Europe. And Asia is also broken up 
into sub-region Asia and Southeast Asia. Southeast Asia, yeah. However, when doing scoring for Asia, you count all of those countries, irrespective of them being Southeast Asia or Asia. The same with Europe. And the same with Europe. Um, but in terms of placing influence at the beginning of the game, and then there are certain cards where they differentiate between Western and Eastern European countries. That's right. They've differentiated it there. So the wording is very important. And, um, and this is why it takes so long to learn oh, the game. Oh, goodness me. <laughs> and I guess the, one of the critical points of the DEF CON status is if... Now, we're going to get into a bit of complex terminology here, but we'll explain this. If the phasing player, which is basically the player whose turn it is, if for whatever reason the DEFCON goes below two, the game ends and you lose. Mm. Now, this can be brought on by, for example, you play a card that requires the opponent to also play a card. Mm-hmm. And they play a card that lowers the DEFCON, you lose. Correct. You have to be very careful when you're sort of balancing on a knife's edge. Correct. Um, so I, I suppose um, we should probably just, in the mind's eye of the listener, mm. at this point, sort of set out how the game looks from a from a round to round perspective, mm. and then hopefully that helps in terms of getting a better sure. understanding of. Um, of, of how it plays out and how these mechanics work. Of course. i just like to touch on victory points. Yep. Just quickly. Sure. Unlike other, I may suppose, traditional games where it, it a, is a... Collu- uh, sorry, am I saying this correctly? Collumative score? A, a culminative score? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where you, you add your score as the game progresses. Oh, a cumulative a score. A cumulative score. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And each player tracks their own score. Mm. This is more of a tug of war. So the victory point marker starts in the center at zero. If the USSR player, the Soviet player, gains points, it goes up for them. If the American USA player starts gaining points, then that will detract from the Soviet score. Correct. For example, Soviet gains three, there'll be in a score of plus three. If so the, from the US perspective there, he's at negative three. Correct. I that's the way to help. To look at it. That's yeah. right. But then if the American player gains three points... Back to zero. Back to zero. Yeah. That's really good. And then obviously just explain how the victory points work. Sure. 20 points, victory points will win you the game. That's right. So you don't have to play the game all the way through. If mm. you get to a point where you reach 20 victory points, you've automatically won by supremacy of... Of, uh, of might. Of might, that's, that's right. right. Um, also, if once the game ends, which we'll talk about later mm. um, through the use of all the cards or all the rounds, mm-hmm. it's the player with the most points wins. Yes. So um, just going back a little bit, mm. um, just in respect to how the game plays out. So in essence, at the start of each round, you mm. get a number of cards... Depending on what phase it is in Depending the war. Depending what phase it is. The first turn of, of each round is the headline. Yes. So in essence, both players put a card face down, flip the card over, and that event plays immediately. That's correct. And um, basically, this is you sort of setting the tempo, perhaps, mm-hmm. for the rest of that turn that you're going to play. Now, often you'll play a headline that will benefit you. Mm-hmm. But there's a few tricky cards in the hands as well. One of the American cards cancels the Soviet headline. 
Defectors. Defectors, that's right. Representing the uh, defecting arms, oh, so armed personnel or anyone really, I've, jumping the border correct, and, yeah. and joining the uh, joining the American. Now, with this headline, as Rob mentioned, the headline plays out and it will play out in order of the operations cost, highest first. Correct. And... Um I suppose the other thing I should say there is that with your headlining card, the um, discussion that we had earlier about using the operations value to do something else, whether it is committing a coup or putting influence down, you can't do that in the headlining phase. No. So the event has to play. And like Garrett says, that's all about setting the tone for the round and then obviously making sure that um, that, that, that an event actually takes place because yes. it's representative of the fact that the event did take place Correct. rather than... I just want to use this to put three influence down in <laughs> Libya, for instance. Can't be done. No. And so there's this, I suppose, uh, interchangeable card that swaps side to side. The but, China card. Yeah, the China card. card. Which yeah. will represent uh, the great nation of China. Mm. And their, I suppose, fickle um, ambiguity and favoritism towards now, the I've two countries. Be, I've got to be totally honest with you, Gary. I've never actually read the explanation of the China card, but I do love it. Um, <laughs> but I'm sure the rule book does have a little section oh, on I'm the China sure. card and explains why, um, why, why it is the way it is. But while I'm explaining that, did you want to have a look at the rule book, see if we can bring it out? Well, I, I think I know already. Oh, well, there you go. Well, oh, oh. So presumptuous of me to think that you were ignorant of the facts. <laughs> go for it, Gareth. Well, China um, were communist at the time. They still are. Um, and therefore, they appealed to Russia, to the USSR, and um, and often they would would speak favorably towards each other, help each other out, provide mm. arms and whatnot. Um, but they would also deal with the Americans, knowing that they could get good trade with them. Mm. I know Nixon as well became quite chummy with Mao. That's right. And they he visited China. He yeah. did. He mm. did. Uh, and they actually signed some sh- sanctions together and started mm-hmm. working together. So and there are some cards for that, I believe. There are, but we'll Nixon get and visits China. I that's think. right. Yeah, we'll get to those. Um, um, I guess after the headline. Yeah. So just uh, just cap that off. So yeah, with the sure, China card. So basically, yes. Thank you. Um, each there's a, the China card is a card that sits in the hand of either the Soviet or the US player. It starts with the Soviet player representing the fact that shortly after the end of World War II, uh, the Soviet Union uh, took over, uh, sorry, not Soviet Union, the, 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 the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, took over the Kuomintang, the, the, um, the I suppose, the quasi-democratic um, government of, of, of China, and which is now the Republic of China in Taiwan, which is actually one of the, one of the countries in this game. That's true. Um, so obviously representing that, um, yeah, uh, that, that's exactly right. I've lost my train of thought. To well, well what I was going to say was um, the China card can only be used for influence points. It doesn't have an event tied to it. Therefore, you cannot play it mm. in that opening phase. Now, most cards range from an operations value of one to four. To, yeah, but very few cards do have an operation value of four. I would say the vast majority sit between the two one and, and three. three. Yeah, yeah, two and three. Yeah, that's that's. I, I agree with that. So it's got an operations value of four, which makes it a very strong card. However, if you choose to use those points in Asia, it actually has an operations value of five. And that is exceptionally strong, especially if you're trying to crack a country that has maybe a, um, 
trying to crack an oppo- your opponent's country where they have a lot of influence and they've got control of it, you can try and launch a very strong coup. Alternatively, you can use that to spread quite a lot of influence, spread your Soviet or capitalist seed around <laughs> Asia, um, especially Southeast Asia. That's quite a... Um, quite a good one to do because that not only has the Asia impact on the Asia scoring card but it's also got the Southeast Asia scoring that's card that's right so that's quite good and but obviously we'll get, the stability we'll, of those countries are quite low they are easy to scoop up so move on Let's, uh, yeah yeah no problem um, we've also got six action rounds in early war mm. so six cards to play after your headline now the Soviet player gets to go first and they can play any card that's in their hand And as we've spoken about, they can either play an event or they can use the operations points Mm. at the top left corner in the star. Some players will perhaps use events that would allow them to gain victory points, place influence, perform free coups, um, or they may just use the operations points to do any of those as well. Mm -hmm. There's always a trade-off. You always need to examine and think about the order of cards you're going to play. Some players play reactively, others will play aggressively. Um, it all comes down to play style. Mm. Now, I think this is one aspect we should probably, and I think the thing that we didn't talk about earlier was that I think with the with the um, Order of Play podcast, we want to do some episodes where mm. we go into a bit more depth with the mechanics and, and, and a bit more, get a bit more... Um, how yeah, to win, how to lose. Yeah, that's right. What to look out for, strategy. So uh, this, we might go into a bit more depth about this, but uh, but I think with 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 the Soviets always getting that first action, it's very powerful in oh, this game. It is, um, especially in terms of meeting your military operations, um, and then obviously with the DEFCON, because the thing you'll notice with this game is that very quickly the DEFCON gets to <laughs> quite low. Yeah, threes and twos, and obviously once you get to a two, your options for Cooing. those yeah cooing getting meeting your operations yes. it become few and far between so the, the, that that after the headline once both players have played the headline that first um that first opening gambit by the soviets is, is often really effective yes. so if you're the the u.s player that's the biggest weakness i think you have as the u.s player is always having to play second fiddle to the um to that to that soviet opening move yes. and having to react to that there are a few cards that can mitigate that but on the whole yeah, you, you're basically coming in second as the United States player, but you do get some quite strong cards later on. And you get to have the last turn as well, which mm. <laughs> not Always. as good. Now, now, just we've, we've done the DEFCON status. We have. And, and obviously the thing that we should just say is the relationship between DEFCON and military operations. Yes. So with the DEFCON, the lower it gets the lower your military operation requirements. That's right. Because the world is almost at nuclear war, for example, when you're on DEFCON 2, uh, there is not so much of a request from a request the... Or, yeah, I think that's a, yeah, it's hard to define, but it I is. think it's trying to say that there isn't an expectation from the public perception or no. like the, the military-industrial complex might be thinking, we don't want well, to see a no, nuclear war, no, so your, right. your requirements for operations are less. They're still there, that's but right. they are But if less. there's peace... Why haven't we taken East Germany? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So we've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. So if I had a, if we ended the round with a mm. DEFCON of two, Garrett, yes. how many operations would I have needed to have You completed? need two. So if, it directly correlates. Okay. So, so three is three, four is four and five. That's right. And as you said before, the further down the DEFCON goes, 
the more you're locked out of certain regions. Yes. So five being peace, you can attack anywhere with a coup or a realignment roll. Um, once you've uh, you've reduced to four, you can't coup in Europe anymore. Three, Asia's gone. And two, no longer the Middle East. No. So the only places left in the world that you can attack are the sad um, developing world of Africa and, and the, the Americas. Americas. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you can't attack battleground countries there either. No. At, once you're at DEFCON 2, because irrespective of them being in the developing world, they still will reduce the DEFCON. That's right. So moving on. <laughs> moving on, yes. Um, I think as well, we've, in the top right-hand corner of the map, you've got a, a turn record track um, and you are aimed to play 10 turns. Uh, there's three turns that happen in early war, four in mid and three in late. Um, and it, don't get confused with the terminology. A turn isn't an I go, you go. A turn is both players playing out their full hand mm. of cards. Um, usually six six rounds, uh, six cards to be played, plus your headline to make seven um, for the early war. And then that goes up to seven action rounds is what the mm. game calls them, yep. plus your headline in both mid and late. Mm. So they're game turns. Now, the other thing that we haven't, touched on here um, that is on the board is the space race good old space race now this is probably one of your few outs when you do have a bunk card that belongs to your opponent do you want to give some history behind that as well perhaps yeah um so so obviously in the early 50s the soviets started to push forward with sputnik and and uh what was the dog's name i can't remember oh, the dog's name that's not natasha <laughs> no i think it's like mila or something like that i yeah. oh, no, sasha Sa I can't. maybe maybe i don't know anyway the point is that Early on, the Soviets began to um, experiment. Really experiment with the space race. And obviously, um, Americans did as well. I mean, that was why a lot of the Nazi scientists were stolen out of out of Germany for, for to both sides because they both realized the importance of rocket technology, jet yes. technology, and that then fed on to, um, to space. And to some extent, the space race was really just a status symbol to show the, the development and the prestige of the country and right. to demonstrate that from the Soviets' perspective, yes, the Soviet system is the best system for this world as as a point of, of evidence. Look at this brilliant spaceship. This it was been... another front to fight on. That's exactly right. And um, and I suppose it was to their downfall. Some argue that the space race ultimately bankrupted, bankrupted the, Soviet the Soviets Union. and led them down that that path. But um, but the space race is basically a track, um, just like the DEFCON status. I mean, it, it sort of moves from, from, from point to point. But to explain it, um, how many are there, Garrett? I believe there's nine. Nine or ten? Ten. Nine. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There's nine. And there are, it's, a, it's a purge, basically. You, you both start at the beginning. Yes. And then essentially um, what you can do is you can sacrifice a card um, for the first turn, it needs to be at least a two ops card or higher. And if you roll a dice, um, one of your red or uh, blue dice that you get given with the game, if you roll a one to a three, you move up um, the space race track. And for doing so, for getting, and it's got a little picture here of Sputnik <laughs> to demonstrate that first satellite going into space. Uh, whoever gets there first gets two victory points and the second person gets one victory point. That's right. And this simulates your country putting resources into this space program mm -hmm. um, and essentially perhaps getting a reward for that. So if you do fail that role, you stay where you are on the track, but that card that you've sacrificed does go into the discard pile. So it can come back later on. 
but it's definitely a very good, I suppose, mechanic in which you can get rid of one of your opponent cards without really that event. You really don't want to play. Yes, without that event playing out. Now, a really good example of a card that you might not want to play. Let's see. Let's find one. Okay, so this is a perfect one. If you were the Soviet player, you really don't want to play Marshall Plan because Marshall Plan allows the play of NATO, which prevents the Soviet Union from committing any coups in Europe. And also, by playing the Marshall Plan, you can play seven influence in any non-US Well, the US society. player can play. US, that's exactly right. Seven influence, which in is huge. Non-Soviet countries, which is very powerful. And not to mention it's a four ops card as well. Mm. So, so um, that said, you get to play those ops. The opponent doesn't. But anyway, the point is that that's a very powerful card. You might not necessarily want that early on in the game because this is an early war card. You might be trying to make a push on Europe. You don't want them putting even more right. influence in places like Italy and France, which are battleground countries. So I want to space race that card. Boom. Roll your dice. Roll your dice. I rolled a one. Brilliant. I got my two victory points. And the further you go up... It's not just victory points. They happen um, every second. Um, no, there are in-game sort of abilities that will be activated as well. Yep. So um, what's important about these though is once you've met them, they can go. Mm. When your opponent reaches the same spot you are or advances beyond that point, mm. that bonus is lost. So the second one along, for example, is instead of just being able to uh, play one card on the space race, you can actually do two per turn and that's the animal in space that's right so as a monkey or a dog <laughs> I whatever, think it's a dog whatever you're sent up but the the americans did a monkey they did yeah they sent monkeys into space so if you reach that <laughs> then you are so, able to burn two cards per turn which can be fantastic for burn for getting rid of those uh, opposition cards correct but as soon as your opponent reaches that spot or gets past it you've lost that bonus yep that's right and um and then obviously um you eventually want to get to the end. And I don't think we've ever gotten to the point it's where we've reached rare. number nine. I think the bonus isn't that good, to be honest, but that's... It's not. Well, we conversation for later. Your conversation for the depth, the depth charge. <laughs> Our spin-off episode. <laughs> Our spin-off in-depth podcast episode. But uh, but obviously every second... Um, every second... Uh, um, what would you call these? Tra uh, positions. Positions. Yeah. Um, development phases. You know, obviously getting a man into space. Next is a man. Um, but as you get down them, every second one is um, victory point gains. That's right. And uh, every other one is um, something that a gives a bonus. Yeah. Now, I think the most powerful one and the one easiest to get to for the value, yeah, absolutely. So Garrett just pointed to it, man in Earth orbit. Now, once you get that your opponent has to choose and show their headline card first. Now, that is exceptionally powerful. Mm. Um, let's think of the Americans, for instance, with their defectors card that we talked about that cancels the, uh, the Soviets card no matter what they play. Well, then play an American card and it cancels out. Or you could play anything, really. That's right. So really, that, that, that's, that's, um, that's the space race. So it, it is, like you say, a nice little mechanic to sort of get rid of those pesky cards that you really don't want your yes. opponent to have. Um, and then obviously the victory points and those little special rules are not too bad either. Mm. But do you think it is somewhat of a little bit of a distraction? I mean, do you think the game needs that? What, what are your thoughts on that? I think I like the added level of complexity. Um, I believe that it's another 
sort of carrot that's being dangled in front of you that mm. if you can commit the right resources there at the right time, you can have quite the edge over mm-hmm. your opponent. Um, it's also nice to know that you're not doomed to play out this terrible hand of yours. Mm. You can actually mitigate and get rid of at least one two, at yeah. least one or two of those cards in mm. your hand. Um, what I'd like to talk about next, if we're finished with that, is the um, placing of influence, mm. coups, and realignments. Your main three actions, your bread and butter yes. of this game. Great. Yeah. So besides the actual events that can play out. So, for instance, the Ortega elected into Nicaragua. Can we pick one a bit more interesting than that? That is, that is just boring. How about the Iron Lady? The Iron Lady. Thank you very much. Maggie, so, so Maggie, Maggie Thatcher. Yeah, that's right. Oh, the old Thatchmaster General. <laughs> so, the Iron Lady card is a late war card, obviously being the 80s. Mm. US gains one victory point. You add one USSR influence in Argentina. That's representing the uh, Falklands and the yeah, Falklands War, of course. Right. And remove all US or Soviet influence from the UK. So she's not taking any... No Soviets, commie crap. No, no. commies. They're gone. Um, and then social government's event no longer play- sure. playable. So that, you can choose to play that event. Or... Great. Or ditch Maggie... I want to play the three ops and I want to do something different. Garrett, what can I do with my three ops? Great. So your three choices are, number one, placing influence. Now, influence is, it could be considered multiple ways in a real life example. It could be you're supplying humanitarian aid to these countries. It could be installing dictators or governments that are aligned to your superpower. Yep. Um, it could be that you've just taken over in a pacifist way. Um, but it's basically could you, be a million ways. Could be a million it. ways like represented. Say, advantageous trade agreements. Sure. Aid, like you say, just financial benefits, paybacks, um, bribery. I mean anything really. <laughs> that's right, it, that's it, right. It, it's really your imagination, I suppose. I'm sure it is in the book, but Oh, I, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So So on. the point is that you can only place this influence in adjacent countries where you have your own influence already. Now, fortunately, you do start the game, as both players, with influence in certain regions and countries around the world. And this is um, representative of how the land lay at the end of World War II. So, um, for example, there is three Soviet influence in East Germany to begin with, which is enough to hold the country um, because it meets its stability number. Mm-hmm. So as the uh, Soviet player, if I had a three ops card in my hands, um, I could then place one influence in a connected country such as Austria. East Germany is also connected to Poland, so I could put one in there. Um, and it's also connected to Czechoslovakia. So these little boxes that represent the countries or the regions, and then um, these connections are marked by little um, black lines between them. So that's what determines whether or not you can place influence in an adjacent country. Correct, correct. But there are some countries that are right next to each other, but there is no line, correct, Garrett? No, that's right. Can you give us an example? Yes. uh, The tensions between Israel and Iraq, um, two very different ideologies, two very different states, um, and there is no connecting line there. But there is a connecting line between Israel and Egypt, for instance. Correct. There's a lot of tension there, but at the same time, there's a lot of history there, so they're, 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 they're connected. That's right. So just because they are geographically linked doesn't mean that they are... Um, Politically, if influentially linked, I suppose. That's right, that's right. So we understand these are quite 
nebulous concepts and mm. they're a little bit ephemeral, but but really um, it plays a critical aspect to this game that the, the, the ability to move from one country to the next and starting your little base and That's right. moving out. Now, a common strategy would be to put enough influence in one go into a country that's next door, therefore claiming that country of your own. Now, in the next turn, your opponent can place influence in there if they're also similarly adjacent and linked or if they had influence in that country already. Or if they had a card that allowed them True, to place the True, but we're just looking at from the influence placing perspective, not the event at the sure. moment. If they do though, and the country is owned by their opponent, they actually need to pay two influence to place one influence in that country. Mm-hmm. For example, Poland is owned by the Soviets. They have three influence in there. For the Americans to put uh, influence in there, they not only need to be connected, but will need to spend two points of influence just to place one in. And the Poland is notoriously difficult to get to because there's really only... Uh, Czechoslovakia might be a country you could get into but it's also got East Germany, which you would be finding very hard to get through. You've got to rely on your events for that one. You've got to rely on your events, which there are events for that. That's right. Now, on doing this, the country becomes what's called unstabilized. um, And the tokens are actually color-coded to represent this. The Soviet tokens have two signs to them. One is red with yellow writing. The other side is white with red writing. The red side... If it's flipped to that, will show that the Soviet player owns that country. They have met the stability and it's theirs. If it does become unstable, it gets flipped. Now, the same can be said with the American. They have a blue token mm. with white writing and vice versa for the flip side. So we've been in situations where we've stacked influence against each other turn mm. for turn, trying to match and beat the others to wrestling try and control. wrestling control of this country. Mm. Um so I suppose it, that it's representative of pouring your resources and your attention into that correct. into that region. It's becoming a hot zone. So as a result, you're fighting each other. And obviously, the higher the influence of the country, sorry, the stability of the country, mm. um, the harder it is to get control of it off your opponent. Because in order to control it, you have to match or exceed the correct. stability of the country in terms of your influence against your opponent. Right. So let's say that in Poland, again, the Soviet player has three influence. The American player has three influence. Mm. The American player will need to put three more influence in there in order to control it, having three more, which is the stability number of the country. So in order to do that in one turn, they would need a four ops card. Or a three ops card because they've equaled the stability. If they've both got three in there already. Oh, correct. That's exactly right. Yes. So he'd need to play a three ops card. Or she. Or she to get six to then wrestle control and take control of the country. Correct. So as we've said before, lower stability countries require less resources, higher, more resources. Yes. Anything else we'd like to add on influence or should I move on to realignment? No. So just just recapping that obviously you can only place influence in a country that you're already adjacent to. When you start the game, your influence is already in there um and then obviously the required amount of influence to put into a country to control it depends on the stability rating of the country itself that's right um and obviously the lower stability the easier it is for your opponent to wrestle control from from you in respect to placing influence as well as as we're about to cover cooing Mm. oh you want to go cooing let's do cooing all right we'll go cooing cooing is an aggressive assault 
mm-hmm. trying to overthrow the the influence and stability of that country and take it for your own. Um, this can be a raid, a a toppling of governments, um, perhaps taking out of key installations, um, and then installing your own government dictators or or similar. Mm-hmm. The idea here is you can coup any country on the board that the DEFCON status allows. Yes, it's a very good... Well, you can choose to ignore the DEFCON. You could. You lose the game. Lose the game. (laughs) You could. But you get locked, as we spoke about before, you get locked out of cooing regions as the DEFCON decreases. So, as Rob said, in peacetime, DEFCON 5, coo any country you like. And you don't need to be adjacent or have any Correct. An association or even any influence in that country. No, that's right. You could be controlling it with me having no presence in even the continent, yet I can come in and try and overthrow. Yes, with correct. My, with my capitalist <laughs> ideals. That's right. Yeah. You paratroop in some, uh, <laughs> some commie uh, infiltrators. Yeah. And, and I think that's quite, I mean, you can probably, there was a lot of coups going on in cent- Central and South oh, America wow. during the Cold War. So there's a bit of that, but I mean, more broadly, the Cold War was filled with military coups and um, Bay of Pigs, for example, in Cuba, Pigs, Iran, mm. um, Chile with um, is it Augusto Pinochet. And I mean, there's there's countless oh. examples across the world. So Suez Canal with Egypt and Israel and uh, yeah. the UK got involved with that one in France. So it's it's um, yeah, it's it's it's. So let's <sighs> let's talk the mechanics behind it. Yes. So essentially, the idea is it's a die roll. Yep. That is your deciding variable. Um, what you do is it's a mathematical equation. You take the stability well, of... Let's start, you play the card. So sure. You, just... you play the card. Say, for example, I've still got this Iron Lady card, which was a three ops card. We take that value and we're going to roll a single die. We add those two values together. Let's say, for example, I rolled a four. So that's a seven. We're going to verse that against the country we're attacking. Let's say, for example, France. France has a stability of three. It's a somewhat stable country. That gets doubled on every, every time. It always mm-hmm. gets doubled. So we're at six. And so we have scored one above that. What yes. that would mean is if there's any Soviet influence in there, it would get minused. If they were on three, it now goes down to two. If they're on one, it now goes down to zero. We then would plus one American mm-hmm. if they were on zero to begin with. That's right. So if there was no influence in there... It's just like the villi- the, the victory point track. Sure. You consider your opponent's influence... It's a tug of war. A tug of war, that's right. But um, unfortunately, you can't coup a place that hasn't got enemy influence. No, that'd be great. That would be really good. <laughs> so that example doesn't quite work for adding influence. But let's say, for example, we rolled a six instead. So six plus our Iron Lady card of three gives us a nine. Let's pretend there was one influence in France. Mm -hmm. So we double that France, goes to six. We would then negative one from then Mm -hmm. and then plus two for ourselves. Correct. And obviously you can see now, hopefully, the power of stability. Yes. um, The stability score, score of a country. So obviously the higher a country's stability score... It exponentially gets because it gets multiplied by two. Yeah, it, it gets harder and harder. So some countries have only a stability score of one, in which case, irrespective of what you roll, 
if uh, if your opponent hasn't put enough influence in that country, you're going to snap that baby up. You're going to snatch it up. But at the same time, you, you, you're you not going to be able to hold on to that country either yourself unless you put a lot of influence in it. Correct. Or you roll really well. That's right. Mm. So the UK, like we've said, has the highest stability score in this game of five. It's... Well, that means that when you're trying to coup the UK as the Soviets, it's got a stability of 10, which means that... It can't you... be done. Um, no, because well... your, your max operation is four. Well, if you played one of the... Um, well, like containment, for instance, for the for the Americans. can't go more than four. It can't go more than no. four. So it can, so the UK cannot actually be cooed. That's right. Because your roll of six plus your stability uh, plus your actual card ops of four, four, four equals that ten. That's right. Which so, <laughs> makes a certain sense. It does to yes. coo the United Kingdom would be um, yeah somewhat ridiculous and sure. impossible. Sure, but. Um, but yes, yeah, so so obviously the stability score um, of the country plays a huge role in the decision, and and obviously trying to coup very stable countries is something you have to consider. Um, but it's sometimes worth it. For instance, Israel is a battleground country, mm. but it has a stability of four. Uh, yet you might find yourself in a situation where you're trying to wrestle control of the Middle East, and it might make sense. Um, so it's a yeah. tough nut to crack, yes. um, but it is doable. And I guess going back just briefly on stability, it's a representation of perhaps um, alliances, mm-hmm. um, historically how well these these countries have fought, mm-hmm. um, their ideology, their geographical location as well. If they're surrounded by mountains, for example, might provide some defensive terrain. And the era. So, I mean, obviously the African continent, for instance, has very low stability almost across the board. There's very few examples of countries with stabilities over one. South Africa and Algeria, Ivory Coast, Somalia, West African states. These are the only... Oh, and Morocco. Oh, yes. But it's a non-battleground, so it doesn't really matter. But besides that, the other eight-odd countries that I can see in front of me right now all have stabilities of one. Correct. Now, that is representative, I suppose, of post-colonialism and the fact that there was a lot of ambivalence across the African continent against um, the old colonial powers of Great Britain, the United States, and, and that there was a look to well maybe there was a bit more of a receptiveness to the concepts of socialism and and uh, and, and communism uh, which certainly was the case in, in certain parts yeah. of the world so so really that's that's part of it but i think like you say and something that i've never really thought about but maybe the social cohesion of the country as well mm-hmm. so how unified they are as a country um for instance um let's see india has a stability of three um that that that's probably you know, one aspect of that's re- why it's stable. Australia has a, a stability of four, mm. um, but I suppose the other, uh, the other thing to consider is maybe, I was going to say they're tied to the United States, but that's not really how it works, is it? It's hard to really define. Mm. Is there anything else that we should consider in terms of stability, political stability, social sure. stability, sure. cohesion, I think that's unity? It for now. It's it's not as important for the game. No, it's just uh, like being able to recognize. All right, what country is important? What do I need to take? What's mm. the linchpin or what's going to solidify my position? Yes. Which I suppose segues to our last main action that you can take, which is what we call the realignment. Yes. Now, the realignment is you can never gain points, influence markers from realigning, but you can try and reduce them in your opponent, as well as perhaps if you roll badly, losing your own. Yes. Now, realignment is based on countries that are close by, that are adjacent, that are held by either player. 
if the country you're trying to realign is held by either player and it's an opposing die roll. Yep. So let's, for example, we're going to look down at Angola here down in Africa. Now, Angola is connected to three adjacent countries, South Africa, Botswana, and is that? Zaire. Zaire. So if Angola was controlled by Rob, yes, um, and I had all those other three countries, I would gain a plus three to my roll for one, two, three countries, and he would gain a plus one yes. to his roll for owning that one country. We would then roll off. And the victor would have the highest result. And say, for example, I had a score of six by rolling a three and plusing yep. three countries. You got a roll of two plus one for your Angola ownership. Yep. Yep. That would be a difference of three. I would then remove three influence from your country. Until I'm gone. Correct. Now it takes one operation point to use it. This, 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 this realignment, this, this action. So you can use it as many times as the operations value of Correct. your card and you don't have to do them on the same country. That's right. But obviously being mindful of the fact that the DEFCON limits your ability to realign certain countries depending on the status. Well said. Now, the other thing I should say um, with, with the realignments, there, there are, so we should say that there's a few things that, that influence and one thing that we missed out there was mm. that you're adjacent. If it's a country adjacent to a superpower, that's another yes, modifier. Correct. Um, now I'm just saying, uh, so yeah, each player rolls a dice and each player adds the modifiers below to his or own die roll. The higher roll may remove the difference between the rolls from the opponent's influence in the target country. Ties are considered a draw mm -hmm. and no markers are removed. A player may make several realignment attempts against the same country using the operations point from the same card. Yes. So, so we've covered go. all that already. Um, and there, the three main actions. Yes. And we should say that we actually don't use realignments that much, do we? It can be effective if you've got a, um, a country that you're trying to tap into that you've surrounded and they just they have a lot of influence. Instead of trying to fight them, instead you can realign, whittle down their numbers and just gradually wear them down. And that's considered perhaps a political pressure from mm -hmm. these other countries to toe the line and, um, and become, you know, democratic or mm -hmm. become part of the um, the communist regime party mm -hmm. ideology. How do you find it effective? It can be. It's very situational. Um, you might be trying to scrub somebody out of a region that you're trying yes, to get control that's, over. That's right. That's right. So that can be very effective when it comes to scoring. Um, if you don't have a presence in a region when the scoring happens, then you will find yourself... In shit creek. Yes. Without a commie paddle, <laughs> without a potato. So um, I suppose that you've just touched on something there, Garrett, which we haven't really fully gone into. The scoring? The scoring sure. cards. Did yeah. you want to talk about that? I, I think this is almost the last thing we need to talk about. Yes. Um, sure. So the scoring, as we've mentioned briefly before, um, have to be played if they're in your hands and may not be held onto. That you can't space race them. Can't either. space race them. That turn, they must be played. There's a scoring for each region and they will come out at different times throughout the game. Um, the regions that were considered important at the time, mm. so for example, in the early days of the war, Europe, Middle East and Asia were on, on the map. They were where... The hotspots. The hotspots, where mm. the fighting was happening, where this Cold War was really erupting. And as those zones got locked down throughout in his sorry historically, um, then other regions of the world became up for grabs. So that's what's represented with this scoring. It's how well you're doing 
at this specific time in this specific region. And I think we should say that obviously this is a very, this is a massive simplification oh, of, yes. of world politics. Obviously, the commies and the Americans were not solely focused on those three regions right after the war. But you're right, is that if we are sort of to generalize things, then yes, absolutely. At the very beginning, right after the war, Europe was the hotspot with the Berlin Wall. Of course. Um, you know, so getting erected, the, um, the, the standoff and the, and the divvying up of, 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 of those continental Europe. Basically. Continental Europe between mm. Eastern and Western Europe. Correct. And then obviously with the K- Korean War in, in, that, in the 1950s, mm. uh, as well as Israel and the Palestinian mandate and all of that stuff. I mean, this is all. 1940s, 50s, 60s, that sort of early period. That's right. Now, do note that every scoring card is a little bit different. They all effectively do the same thing, but the amount of victory points that you receive for holding and controlling different countries does differ based on the importance of that region on the geopolitical landscape. Yes. Um, if there's a greater divide between the two countries, a greater distance in uh, held locations, for example, in Europe, between the two players, then that's going to benefit one player over the other. Whereas your Africa scoring isn't as high as so it's not really considered, um, you know, as important at this uh, in this game. Politically, yes. Politically, yes. Um, so the scoring works like so. Um, if you have... Actually, I might have this over to Rob. He might have the sheet in front of him. Yes, I do. Go for it. So... Obviously, in terms of the scoring, there, there are some ways that we differentiate between the two players. And the way they're differentiated is by determining your presence or your domination or your control. Now, in order to have a presence in the country, um, you have to control one or more countries in that region. doesn't matter. doesn't matter if it's a battleground or a non-battleground country. But for doing that, you achieve a certain numerical score but depending on where it is in the world. So let's take the Middle East, for example. If you control Saudi Arabia, your presence will equal three. Correct. Now, just uh, coming in there quickly, this scoring applies for both players at that time. Correct. So if I had a country and Rob also had one country, we would both get the same amount of points if it was, say, for example, a non-battleground country that we both held. Correct. And Garrett's touched on something very important there, which is that Obviously, being a battleground country, I would not just have my presence, but also have a plus one for owning a battleground. So Saudi Arabia is a battleground country, so I'd actually get a score of four. And it's a plus one per battleground country that you have. Yes. Now, the next uh, uh, step up in the tier is is having domination of the region, and that's controlling more countries and more um, battleground countries in a region than your opponent you must control at least one non-battleground and one battleground country. So that is, is once again, that's, that's an interesting sort of dynamic there mm. that you have to control more countries um, and at least one battleground and one non-battleground country. That's where realignments might come into play. Yes. Um, and control, which is the final tier, is controlling more countries and all battleground countries in the region, which is very hard to accomplish, but the payoffs are obviously much greater. That's right. It's a very high score for that one. Now, in addition to that, uh, as Garrett says, you get one victory point per battleground that you control in addition to um, the points that you gain for um, each of those tiers. So for the Middle East, like I said, a presence gets you three points, domination gets you five, and control gets you seven. Europe... Uh, is obviously the, one of the key regions, if not the most important region in this game, because if you can control Europe, 
you win the game. That's right. When that scoring card comes up for Europe, if you control all the battlegrounds and uh, more countries than your opponent, then you win. Yes. Now, as I mentioned on, I just want to cover this again because it is very important. It's accumulative. So let's say, for example, Rob has got domination over me in Europe. He's controlling more countries and more battleground countries. Um, but I still have a little pocket in the UK that I'm holding on to. It's not a battleground country. It's just a regular country. I will still get points for that. I still have a presence there. I still get three points. Correct. However, Rob's going to get seven points for his domination, plus, plus, let's say, three points for having control of France, Eastern Germany, and Poland. He's got a score of 10. I've got a score of three, which means he's going to earn seven victory points on the victory point track. When the card is played. Absolutely. So, as you can see, with a 20-point sway each way to win the game, yes, victory points... As, you, as Garrett provided that example there, are very important. And if you miscalculate in this game just a couple of times, um, I, I recall one game quite some time ago where I completely ignored Africa. I let Garrett take over that. I didn't really keep track, and, and, and he pulled out that Africa scoring <laughs> card, and, and that was, I think... Control plus, I think, about four battlegrounds. So he right. swung the Whopping game 10, uh, points. 10, 10 points. Yeah. And, and that really wiped me out. That's right. So so you have to be very mindful. And like I said before, really watching your play and being reactive to what they're doing. Because if you don't, you'll just end up uh, losing very quickly. Yes. Um, and and and, uh, and like I say, you, you have to be constantly on the lookout. For Juggling many mechanics at the mm. same time, looking out for what that opponent is up to, um, trying to mitigate your own cards in your hand. It is the ultimate strategic challenge mm. um, for two like-minded individuals to mm. really battle it out. Um, unfortunately, this game isn't for everyone, but we'll talk about that in more detail later. Yes. Are there any other sort of main mechanics, Rob, do you think we need to cover? I'm sure I'll think of something, but for now, I think that really... Wraps up that mechanics. That was one hour. Wow. <laughs> we thought we were going to do this in about 20 minutes. We thought it would be 20 minutes, but there is a lot to unpack with this game. So I think we, we, we really did as much as we could. Um, so no, I, I think that's it. Um, so we can move on to our next segment. Right. Um, we're going to look at replayability. Yes, replayability and, and, and over, overall views of the game and our review of it, I suppose. Sounds great. Um, so did we want to just have a quick break? Yeah. And we'll be right back. Great. The important question of replayability. Replayability. When we're playing this game, the reason each game is so different is because you're assigned a random hand of cards. Hmm. I mean, they're the same cards every time, but the combinations change so much. Hmm. Um, you always get the same map. You always have the same cards as the ones that are available. But the strategies can change from game to game. Mm. Um, one coup can upset the entire balance of your strategy and you have to rethink on the fly. Mm. I feel the repli replayability is quite high with this game. Um, there is an expansion set as well. Mm. Um, it just offers a few new cards and a sort of pre-game um, series of events where you roll dice mm. and you can change sort of the starting influence locations. Uh, I wouldn't recommend it, uh, but we'll get into that later in the depth charge episode. Mm. Is there anything you want to add about replayability, Rob? I, I would say that it's ex ex one of the most replayable games I've ever played. 
Um, my only game that I could think of that comes even close would be something like chess mm. where, you know, you can play it because it has so many infinite um, iterations or not iterations, but variations in terms of how it can play out. And the whole concept of, like I say, the um, the space race track and the using the ops values and then choosing which events you actually play out changes the game. Um, every time you play so you'll never have a game of twilight struggle that will be the same as another game and um i suppose the complexity of the game plays into that it does and and the opponent that you're versing can also play into that as well yes because you've had games with other players who have completely different tactics to how they approach correct. the game correct and that's thrown you for a loop i play my partner she plays one way i play mm. you you play another way um it's this fantastic ebb and flow of strategy mm. So in that respect, I would say I would sort of just reinforce and maybe maybe sort of push it up a bit and say actually it's probably one of the most playable board games um, ever made, really, as far as far as my current experience goes with with board gaming. Sure, definitely. Awards and commendations. This is according to BoardGameGeek.com. Um, back in two thousand and five. It won the Charles S. Roberts Best Modern Era Board Game. Um, it also won the Char- James F. Dunnigan Award winner, the 2006 Golden Geek Best Two-Player Board Game, the Golden Geek Best War Game winner in 2006, mm. plus the 2006 International Gamers Award for Historical Simulation and the General Strategy Two-Players in 2006 also won the 2011 luca games best board game for experts and the 2012 game of the year nominee and the 2012 ludoteca ideal winner i'm not so sure what two, that 2005 is. 2006 was a bumper year for gmt games that must have been like going to the uh the golden geek awards must have been like the <laughs> return of the king of the oscars you know just every time Fuck me, why do they get every? Oh man, but <laughs> hell they deserve it. They did, yeah. I mean, they released a cracker of a game and, and obviously um, 13 years on, wow. there is a large following of people who, who do play this game. Definitely. Um, it's even an app as yes. well, uh, which has a very good app. A great app, very easy to pick up. Uh, it's full of instructions and how to plays and um, it comes at $6.99 on the App Store. It's multiplayer mm. or you can play Pass the the ipad as well so one screen two players mm. um would highly recommend it if you want to check it out and not invest um into the game as a whole um now the other thing about the the the, the computer game is, is obviously you do lose that tactile aspect of, of a board game however um in terms of learning the rules mm. it does tell you when you're doing something wrong which a board game will never tell you. So, right. so like Garrett said, we played a number of games <laughs> wrong. And, and, to, and to be brutally honest, we probably do play little aspects of this game still wrong. I'm we don't sure. know. I'm sure but, but we do. Because there are hundreds of mechanics, uh, little tiny, tiny aspects to this game that make it very hard to get a whole grasp of it. The book is written like an instruction manual for a CNC machine. That's right. Uh, don't let that detract you from... <laughs> oh, it was very imposing when we first picked this up. So, you know, refer to 10.1 scoring. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's intense. Yeah. But it's like learning a language or learning to <laughs> That's right. fly a plane. You're it's, all the better for it. You're all the better for it. Mm. So moving on to sh- should you buy it? Value of the game and should you buy it? Yeah. If you are a historical or strategic 
or chess buff love to lock horns with intellectuals um, over world domination, mm. then this game is for you. Yes, I reinforce that. I don't think I really need to add anything more to it. Um, it's a it's an interesting take on an interesting era mm. and, and probably something that never really got touched on before. I don't I don't know of any other Cold War era focused games. Certainly there's games about the Korean War and Vietnam War and, and, and you know, obviously we've got Risk and we've got all these mm. other world domination games, but certainly a game that focuses on the, the, the Cold, Cold War, War aspect of um, the 20th century. I don't think you can find a more apropos strategy game to drink down a couple of brews on a Friday night. <laughs> and I think that is exactly what we're about to do, Garrett. Yeah, I can't help myself any longer. We have to end this cast and play a game. Well, thank you for listening to this uh, first uh, episode of the Order of Play podcast. Garrett, have you got any um, final words before we uh, we disembark? Stay tuned. We're going to release uh, a spin-off episode called The Depth Charge, which is going to dig into the strategy of this game, how to win, what to look out for, um, how to read your opponent and become a better player. Absolutely. Garrett, thank you. Thank you, Rob. Um, thank you. Uh, listener. <laughs> Ciao. Ciao.